Hello again, and welcome to Planet Beyond Podcast, brought to you by Fugro, the leading partner in uncovering geodata from the greatest subsea depths right to outer space, and hosted by me, John Baston Pitt. All around the world right now, exciting things are happening in the world of wind energy. Now, we're all in the energy business. As consumers, we're totally reliant on it and we're getting savvy. We expect it to be there and to be clean. As stakeholders in the supply chain, we are poised to enter the next stage in our energy transitions journey. And the innocent bystanders, and by that I mean the other life forms on planet Earth, might look on these changes with genuine hope. Instead of building offshore wind farms close to shore, the successful deployment of floating platforms for turbines is opening up the vast ocean to renewable energy development. The Global Wind Energy Council predicts commercial deployment of 6 gigawatts of floating wind energy generation by 2030. So, to help us understand where it all began and where it is going, I'm joined by three people who are deeply involved in this growing energy resource. Kian Conroy, Senior Manager at Principal Power, Pablo Nekuchia, Lead Advisor, Floating Segment at Vestas, and Rebecca Williams, Director of COP26 at the Global Wind Energy Council. So to lead us in, let us turn to Pablo from Vestas. Pablo, why now? What has brought us to this point to make it the right and an important time for floating offshore wind? There's two aspects to this. First off, there is the natural evolution of wind energy as a whole from the mid 70s going mm. up into the 90s and how the industry gained credibility in reducing the cost of energy from the super high levels at which it was at in the 70s to a very competitive levelized cost of energy at, at the end of the millennium. And then there was that first technolo technological evolution as we went offshore in the early 90s and mid 90s. I think that that's, that's where there, there was this shift on you know, the, the, on, on, on the credibility for the uh, for the sheer size of these things and of wind turbines, so that they could actually be effective, um, even under offshore conditions. And as we started the offshore journey, we also saw that the first there was a big push for subsidies because in the beginning offshore wind was simply not so competitive, and subsidy levels were high and we the industry quickly weaned off of those subsidies what was interesting and i think what is a pivotal turning point in the history of wind energy is when we ourselves as a, as as an industry started to question whether we would survive without subsidies and 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 that's where this magical moment happened when as we were worried about the end of subsidies all of a sudden we realized that we were reaching costs of energy that were competitive with onshore generation and we were already at grid parity. A magical moment. Was it completely by luck? No, it, it was simply un unexpected that we would achieve such a fast cost out 
from a technological point of view, from uh, from an engineering point of view, from a cost of financing point of view. Basically, the industry realized that we could do things at a lower cost. At a lower cost, financiers became a lot more comfortable with the risks of doing work offshore, and we achieved a cost out, or we achieved uh, actual strike prices for the, for example, in the UK that were definitely not what people expected at the end of, I don't know, 2015, 2016. So the projects that you see going into installation in 23, 24, 25 are at great parity. And what's critical here is that this path that we took to get there is precisely the start of the crossroads at which we stand today in floating offshore wind. Kian, you're nodding. What is your take on this magical moment? Pablo kind of hit the nail on the head there. You know, as an industry, we set ourselves the target of, of generating electricity at 100 pounds per megawatt hour by 2020. And as Pablo said, we completely smashed that target by over 50% by 2020, which is a remarkable feat in itself. And that really was the industry finding their groove, understanding their role in the sector. So there's niches for everybody and it's how they, all those niches fit together, interact effectively and efficiently. You know, so at, at the early days, people didn't understand exactly their role in the supply chain or what the technology was. And that's the, I think that's the role of markets evolving and that sort of need for subsidies to support the industry as it found its, as it found its feet. It's worth pausing and reflecting on that success, isn't it? So often we have these plans, but we find that it's twice, three, four times the cost of what we predicted, taking twice, three times longer the, to roll out. Not this time. This has been a positive surprise. And I think that also applies with volumes. So if, if you look at volume targets over time, it seems like every time we make a prediction as to where we'll be in installed capacity in 2020, in 2025, in 2030, every time, every year we, we revise that target and it just seems like volumes increase over time. And I think that's, that's what we're also seeing in floating offshore wind. I think when we make predictions as to where we'll be by the end of the decade, we'll be revising those predictions next year and the year after that. And every year we'll look more and more hopeful. Why? What did we do technically that put us in such a strong position? The technical aspect is, is along the cost out curve and how attractive it becomes for developers. Energy demand onshore doesn't change or changes at, at a predictable rate. But as governments and as developers realize that they can achieve these these very ambitious projects at a as at, a, at an attractive economic return and in a way that makes sense for society as a whole, we see more more governments or more countries making more aggressive commitments. We see more pressure and more competition among developers in rolling out these projects. And the collective volume that's accumulated just sort of grows and grows and grows. And every 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 time you have a new market entrant, all of a sudden the Asia Pacific market becomes super attractive and they take the lead. And that that leads to a reaction from Western countries, and then you have the US. And at the end of the day, there, there is some level of benchmarking between markets, between developers, and there is a competition that is quite enriching for the industry as a whole. So 
we've reached this wonderful crossroads and, and now we're looking forward. Kian, where are we going? So when we see floating wind, it's about complementing the fixed wind. So all the gains that we've had in the fixed wind sector in the UK or on the world, it's about unlocking further potential and driving us towards that decarbonisation goal of policymakers. So what we started to do is we've taken the, the technologies, the two megawatt onshore turbines, and rapidly accelerated and incorporated the learnings of the fixed wind. So all the successes that we've had, we're bringing them on board. Can you give us some examples of these transferable successes? I think there's probably two distinct elements that are transferable. When we started going offshore first, it was kind of onshore turbines that were repurposed to be in the marine environment. And, and as the volumes grew, the sector sort of moved towards tailored solutions for offshore. So the turbines became bigger, we bigger, with higher wind speeds, greater resources offshore, so we're able to use bigger turbines. So we now have tailored offshore wind turbines. And then for the, off, the, the floating element, it's very much the synergies with the oil and gas sector. These are semi-submersible platforms akin to what we've seen in the North Sea for 50, 60 years, the subsea operations or the moorings and so on. So it's not about the engineering challenge, it's now about the policy about putting in place and, and moving the sector from that one-off single unit platform of a, an oil and gas platform, but tailoring that to multiple units of floating wind. So again, it's the engineers will step into the, the demand that the policymakers will create for them, but it's about volume. It's about getting that moving from one giant platform in the middle of the North Sea to 50 units generating sort of a gigawatt of electricity, two gigawatts of electricity. That's that's kind of where we're going to next. And and I think we've seen that on the turbine side of things as well, because as volume increased and as we started going from smaller projects in the North Sea into much larger, into much larger developments, it improves the business case for technology developers to increase the size of the rotors, to increase the nominal capacity, the nominal rating of the turbines, and to include a lot more performance features that truly add value to the project, that reduce the risk for for projects and for and for financial institutions, and basically deliver year on year improvement on on cost. And that that is that's such a powerful key in in this challenge that in this challenge that we have ahead of us on with regards to fighting climate change i find it a very enriching idea that although we are going to a new space we are leveraging and not abandoning existing technology and experience from the oil and gas industry i find that continuum rather powerful and what i personally also really like is that you're taking the the solution that is offshore wind outside of the Goldilocks conditions of the North Sea in Europe and deploying it at a global scale. So it all of a sudden you have, or not, it's, again, it's not all of a sudden, but with floating offshore wind, you have the solution that can be applied worldwide. And you, you're granting access to, their, to, to the offshore wind resources to every country that has a coastline. And that's a powerful tool. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we get to this point now where, as I said, it's it's not an either or between fixed and floating. It's about fully unlocking the potential of the sea in the marine environment. You know, we, we have a scenario in, in the UK where the southern North Sea will be quite shallow and we could see that being fixed for the foreseeable future and then the northern North Sea being floating. And so we, we, we bring that energy generation potential to the full length of the country rather than sort of having it all clustered in, in one, one very concentrated area. 
Let's talk more specifically about how we got to this point with floating offshore wind, because it seems to be growing more than anyone expected. In a previous life, I worked with a research body in the UK called the ORE Catapult, and we looked at sort of technology advancements for the, the offshore wind sector. And in 2014 into 2015, we did a study on the potential of floating wind in the UK. So it was a roadmap of where floating wind will bring us and what the cost reduction potential will be and what the technology variants look like. It was a very comprehensive report we did with the, the aid of the Crown Estate, who were the custodians of the seabed in the UK. And we published this to the sector and to the sort of senior management of the uh, within the sector. And it was well received in terms of that's a very interesting and, and as, as, as Pablo said, we were pushing against the grain at this point. It was, it was well received in terms of its completeness and its technical merit, but it was sense this isn't this isn't appropriate for the UK. That's for your more exotic, deeper, like thousand meters type water depths. And then you roll the clock forward to today where we have the same utilities now competing for 10 gigawatts in Scotland. It's a very aggressive market where, they, you know, they've, as I said, they've, they've gone from being sort of not a, not not negative to the technology, just agnostic to the technology, to now being sort of had the, that road to Damascus moment. There, there's their zealots now, and and that, and that's and that's the flip we've seen in a very very short period of time. When you consider it takes ten years to make a wind farm. Kian, you were involved with what was really the first large scale commercially viable floating platform. There are a number of floating platform options, and there is competition in the market, but. Could you tell us about your solution, the, the wind float, and why that was the first to be commercially successful? The original concept was that the wind float, as we, as we call it, was originally designed for the oil and gas sector. It was designed to be an auxiliary production platform for the oil and gas sector. But very quickly it was realized this has far greater potential in the renewables. And it was the company had this vision that actually we could start to put floating turbines in the sea using that technology. So we worked with partners very early on back in 2011. We worked quite closely with Vestas and, and, and some other utilities across Europe to deploy the first floating semi-submersible. And that was a two megawatt. And it was very similar to, to what, what Pablo said. It was almost the same model that was used in the first offshore wind farm in the UK. It was a Vestas turbine from the onshore sector that was repurposed. And that was there to give us the credibility. We ran that project as if it was a, a whole life experience. It was five years from fabricating it off-site, commissioning it off-site, towing it to the location, operating it, maintaining it, and then decommissioning. So we kind of go through the whole life cycle of a wind farm in a condensed period. And that, what that did, that enabled us to go to financiers, to go to the supply chain, to go to developers and say, look, it is a credible technology and, and the power that you expect is delivered as you'd expect it. And I think that's that's the crucial thing. You know, utilities need to know the predictable predictable nature of power. And then that's, that's what we were able to prove to them with the wind flow, the stability, the reliability, and so on. Once you prove the viability of the two megawatt project, what happened then? So very quickly, once we proved that, we had this huge leap forward. We went from a two megawatt demo to a 25 megawatt array, which is three turbines. And again, it's the scale, these are 8.3 megawatt turbines. But in that project alone, we've now overtaken the total capacity of the offshore wind sector in Ireland. So, in one demonstration project, you have leapfrogged the deployed scenario of all the offshore wind turbines in Ireland. So what is next? It's about scale then, it's about how do we make them bigger, how do we go faster, how do we get more number of units out there. So the demo was there to give confidence to the supply chain and now it's about proving we can do it at scale and that's where the next leasing rounds and the big projects are coming from. I've got this possibly naive concept 
that the pioneers in any industry, and it's you guys I'm talking about here, should be rewarded for these risks, their early engagement and investments. We're getting to that point where things are scaling up. Are you in a better position? Are you being rewarded for that early investment in time, money, energy and thought? We're starting to see, we're seeing success across the board in terms of our projects and the number of units being deployed. We've just just uh, last month commissioned the largest floating wind farm in the world off the coast of Scotland and we're progressing quite aggressively with projects in the rest of the UK, in Korea, in the US, in France. So we're, we're seeing the, the, the fruits of our, our early work start to come that we can work with the turbines, work with the supply chain, work with the financiers. We have that credibility, we can speak their language now. And I think that's the challenge when you come forward with a, a CGI example of a, of a floating turbine, there are so many complexities to be overcome that comes from experience and those hard yards that we did over the first couple of years. CGI, of course, means controllable grid interface. And this is a system that validates wind turbine performance. Pablo, what's your view on this? From our point of view, or from our experience, what we see is that the, there are different types of developers, ones that are brave without knowing a lot about the technology and as they start to explore the technology and the the peculiarities of floating there's quickly a realization that you want to be with someone who has experience in this someone who will help you walk those first steps into into a project because as kian said that the the, the first lessons learned are the most valuable and, and that is where both as an industry as and as a company, both companies have, have benefited greatly. I'm so pleased you said that. Even in these fast-changing times, unless there is reward for that early engagement, taking calculated risks, we're all going to sit there waiting for somebody else to do it. And that's not a growth mindset. But what you guys are doing, challenging the status quo, pushing forward into a new space, it benefits us all. Let's now turn to the policy landscape and, and bring in Rebecca Williams, Director of COP26 at the Global Wind Energy Council. COP26 is the 26th Conference of the Parties, the major climate conference that will bring world leaders to Glasgow in November. You're right, John. COP26, November, Glasgow, it's the UNFCCC. So that's the, the UN Climate Agency's conference. And this year, the, the UK government is host nation of that conference. So it's taking a leading role in the presidency of, of this conference. And this is going to move us forward from the agreement that was made in Paris in 2015 to limit global warming to under two degrees, preferably 1.5. What are you expecting from this, Rebecca? And what can we can we achieve in Glasgow? I think from my perspective, representing the, the global wind industry, the conversation has moved on at 
astronomic pace and speed since Paris around renewables. We've seen that in the UK context, we've seen it in Europe, and now we're, we're seeing it around the world in, in all the global markets that we're working in. So, you know, LCOE has massively come down. If we look at floating wind specifically, was anyone even talking about floating wind at a climate conference five years ago? I'm afraid probably probably not, or just, you know, in, in the, the back channels and in the uh, in meeting, private meetings. But now we're in a position where renewables are becoming the dominant way to produce electricity and increasingly into the future to produce energy and looking at the wider energy system. So the conversation's hugely moved on and now renewables are seen as being at the heart of, of that transition. However, the, the issue is here that there's now a lot of ambition towards renewables and towards de deploying renewables. We see around the world, you know, ever greater targets for, for renewables and that's great. The industry's here to deliver. We're happy to, happy to try and deliver on those targets. But what we don't see matching that ambition is the requisite policy framework. And I'm talking at a global level here, but I'm also talking specifically about many countries' uh, NDCs. NDCs are the nationally determined contributions set by each country in terms of climate-related targets. But whilst we can see these targets, we just don't see the, the underpinning plan. And in a lot of global markets, we're faced with inaction, still faced with frameworks that favour fossil fuels, like you know, priority dispatch onto the grid for fossil fuel projects or state utilities. In some markets, we see a rollback of commitments uh, towards renewables. Uh, and in, even in countries that have a more favourable framework, we still see a lack of action on issues like permitting, for instance. So bringing all that to the floating wind and policy policy context for a moment here, if we're looking at what we would like COP26 to achieve for, for wind and you know, specifically looking at floating wind, then really it is that action, it's that climate emergency approach to policy making. We need to see the detail and we need to see how countries are going to deploy renewables at scale and at speed because time is absolutely running out. We only have 10 years really to get all these renewables that we need built out in order to have any hope of meeting net zero. And we can't leave it any later because as we know, renewables projects take time to build. It can, can be relatively long lead time from inception to, to then generating in the water. So we need to get this done now. And I'm really hoping that COP26 in Glasgow will get us further down that road and we'll see some agreement and commitment to how we're going to deploy all the renewables we need at the pace and scale that we need to meet net zero. Mm. What we also see is some countries moving more quickly than others. Kian, what's your view on this policy landscape? Governments are starting to see that, that gigawatts can actually yield a benefit to their economy in terms of electricity production, but then also it's the climate change. So the UK has set its net zero target at 75 gigawatts. The EU has set its targets for, for, for decarbonisation, which cascades down to all the member states. We're seeing countries like Norway now, which has been probably one of the strongest oil and gas producers in the world, pivot very strongly towards offshore wind with a forthcoming leasing round for offshore wind. And that has been led very much by the oil and gas supply chain. And in the US, at both a state level, we're seeing states like California, mandating strong targets for renewables, but then also at the federal level, the, the government's starting to put in the, the tools in place 
to enable this. So that's why at the policymakers, the consenting, the regulatory level, there's quite a lot of people to be involved to make sure it's done correctly. And we're seeing that. And then across Asia, likewise, we're seeing from Korea to Japan. It's it's governments realizing those two, two those two elements that energy is a resource that can be utilized in the sea and also it's the climate challenge that we're facing. The politicians like us are driven by many things, but we're, we're complex creatures. I once read that results minus ambition or expectation equals happiness. Now, politicians like happy customers, don't they? The expectation from our listeners and from the general community is that we must move in this direction. It has to happen. The pressure is on these groups, isn't it? To ensure the results are large, that is greater than the expectation, so everybody is happy. Otherwise, we get into this nasty circle, don't we? Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, there needs to be action, there needs to be outcomes at, at this point. And I think that's the other thing that, that's moved. We were talking about the pace of technological change and innovation in renewables. But the other thing that's massively moved on is public opinion. If you look at the UK, a market I know really well, who'd have thought that we, who'd have thought that we'd be where we are now, five years ago, when it was still the dirty word really to mention climate change uh, in in a kind of policy making context. Uh, whereas now, you know, our prime minister's visiting wind farms on a regular basis. Everyone wants to talk about their green credentials. So, you know, the the movement has moved on and public opinion and the demand for change in this area has moved on too. Yeah, I, I think Rebecca makes, makes a good point that public expectations increase over time and change over time. And we, we see that year on year as we revise our volume outlooks for floating offshore wind, for fixed bottom offshore wind, for onshore and for the cost of energy predictions as you go as we go forward. From the technical point of view, we believe this can be achieved. We have seen such a rapid ramp up of the onshore manufacturing capacity, of onshore installations, of offshore installations. And if you look at the ramp up that's happening now in, in offshore, as new markets enter in, into the playing field, you it, it, it's just a massive deployment. And you see an industry that is ready to meet the challenge that can ramp up manufacturing and keep up to, to and keep up, keep up to speed with demand and so technically we, we can achieve this we've done it before we know the road to get there and we now have a solution that can be applied in pretty much every coastal nation pablo's exactly right in that actually we need to also focus in on the industrial narrative here when we're talking about public support and public perception of wind and of, of floating wind and what public the public demands. Mm -hmm. So I think before, you know, 10 years ago or five years ago or whatever, industrial policy and renewables were kind of siloed. They weren't really the same thing. Yeah. Renewables yeah. weren't seen as part of that overall narrative. The change we now have in front of us is that the green energy agenda in, in all its forms, plus the kind of digitization agenda, are absolutely industrial policy. They're at the heart of industrial policy. And we see countries around the world really 
uh, driving that forward. So if you look at what's happened in the US recently with their plans that they've set out, if you look at what the EU's been doing with the hydrogen strategy and the uh, their most recent climate strategy, this is industrial policy now, and we're kind of all responsible for help, helping shape that industrial future of the, the countries that we're working in. It sounds like we're on the brink of a new industrial revolution, a green revolution. Kian, you look like you want to jump in here. What, what is the UK perspective? What we saw very much in the UK, we had three licensing rounds that kind of happened in varying scales for fixed bottom wind. We had round two, round one and round two, which were by, by contemporary standards, quite small and unambitious, if we were to be honest, but there were crucial stepping stones that the sector required. But when round three came along, that's when we started to see the scale, the big, big projects, which gave the supply chain the confidence to invest. And we saw it, we started to really see that dividend being paid off in the UK based on, on volume, which in turn, that volume became a virtuous circle. We could drive down cost, we could create the jobs. And that's why we, we, we constantly talk about volume as being a key enabler of a that a policymaker can have to have cost-effective energy, but also to have any benefits in terms of supply chain and infrastructure. Its volume is, is, the, is, the, is the word that drives it all. So from a policy perspective, what we sometimes see is counterintuitive because the lead time is so long from a blank sheet of paper on a licensing program to generation is eight to 10 years. So politicians may not reap the benefit in, in their political lifetime. But we see this counterintuitive move then to do demo projects, which go backwards, which start to bring us a, a sort of a step backwards in terms of that word about volume. So we always have this, this conflict of the, the short-term gain versus the long-term benefit. Yeah, we, we, see, we see that also. And it really does, it, it really feels like a low, like an, like an easy, easy fix. And it's not. All it does is it kicks the can down the road at a time when we cannot afford to be kicking cans down the road. Rebecca talked about ambitious targets for climate change and this, this time pressure to actually deliver. The more countries push to give their local industry a chance by doing small demonstration, demonstration projects so that they can get up to speed, the more time we waste as a, as a planet to deliver this. And that I think also goes hand in hand with the number of, or with this Pangean diversity or Cambrian diversity of floating foundation designs out there, that each seems to have a good idea and each seems to be attractive. And the more countries or policymakers focus on making their local floater float, the, the more time we waste. And I think we have sufficient solutions that are mature enough for commercial scale deployment. And we shouldn't wait until we've tried and tested every every floating design out there. Are we going to leave it to, up to some key countries to drive a number of solutions forward? Or are we investing in the other countries which are behind and really need some kind of stimulus? We, we do have to prioritize, I think, developers and supply chain companies can't be everywhere at once and people are going to gravitate to the markets that have that framework which provides that volume that Kian was talking about. So you know there's there's different appetites for risk of course. We should also be aware of the role of climate financing in in reducing that risk in some of the key countries that, that will in future I'm sure be really successful in this area. But we do need to kind of 
pick, <laughs> I hate this phrase, but we do need to sort of pick some early winners in this race and back them. And I think it's useful to take a regional approach too. So if we're looking at the different regions around the globe, you know, we can all see when we look at wind resource maps where the windiest places are and where, you know, where development should probably be prioritised. But we should also think regionally about what the the capabilities of the neighbouring countries and regions are and whether we can take a kind of hub approach to development in that context. Yeah, if you'll indulge me with a bad pun, but like the rising tide lifts all boats, it's very true for floating wind as well. So as we get the successes of volume in the developed nations, those benefits, they could be localised, floating wind can be localised to the you know, obviously infrastructure needs to support and so on, but it can be tailored to regions that even that don't have manufacturing capability, solutions can be created to have that facility for, a, a, you know, assembly at port or commissioning at ports and all that. So it, it can be tailored, but, a, a, but as Rebecca kind of outlines, there are those kind of commercial, just the norms of industry that have to follow. So if we drive down the cost in Europe or US or, in, you know, in Japan, Korea, the benefits will cascade. And it goes hand in hand with that climate finance that Rebecca also mentioned, that if if we have a solution that can be deployed everywhere, we could have regional hubs for doing installation, assembly and deployment of floating units and, and towing those to where they're most needed. So, you know, it, it's a very hopeful message, actually. And on that hopeful message, we will end this part, this first part of our two-part episode on floating offshore wind. In this episode, we learned about how we got here, the history of wind energy to this point, the move to offshore and into floating turbines, and the changing policy landscape, as well as how we built market and investor confidence. And the bit I love so much from our visionaries, how it all happened quicker than anyone expected. Next month, our guests will return and we will talk about how wind energy is contributing to our struggle against the growing climate crisis. We will learn about how wind turbines can do more than just generate power. They can enhance and protect marine environments. We will learn about the marriage between wind power and hydrogen. And at the end of it all, we will look at the challenges we still have to overcome. As I always say, until next time, be safe, be remarkable, be the difference. <laughs>